You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. Hello. In a minute, I'm going to hand over to James McIntosh, the comment editor of the Financial Times, one of our partners. And I think this is going to be a really fascinating session where three of our leading thinkers amongst the participants are going to say what's on their mind and then we're going to have a big old chat with you. Well, thank you, Julia. Thanks for everyone coming back. I, I hope you um, uh, have all made it, but I suppose there might be someone still out there um, uh, on the sands waiting, waiting for the uh, rescue parties. But um, some of us made it a fair way out. Uh, I saw Julia, Julia wading through the mud. But... Um, we're here this afternoon, we're going to talk a fair bit about the actual topic uh, of the symposium, names not numbers, um, the inherent contradiction, um, you want your privacy, you also want uh, everything you can in terms of personalisation, um, uh, you want to be a member of a group, you also want to be an individual, um, and uh, to talk about that and also to give their ideas, we've got three individuals um, uh, who, well I hesitate to say they're living contradictions, but certainly um, there's, a, there's an element of it among them all. We've got a red Tory, we've got an anti-authoritarian living Marxist editor, and uh, we've got a, a former top management thinker, um, which um, uh, some people might say that was in itself a contradiction. But um, <laughs> before, we, uh, before we go into that, um, uh, first, Philip Blond, um, the red Tory. Um, I think he prides himself on the title, so I can call him that. Um, director of uh, Res Publica, which launched in November, and is going to give us um, seven minutes of uh, thought for the day. All right, okay. <clears throat> I asked whether I should sit down or stand up, and I was told stand up, so there you go. Um, what I want to talk about is um, why we don't trust one another, quite simply. And what I want to suggest, and I want to go to kind of the base governing philosophy of our contemporary suspicion, and I want to suggest to you it's the peculiar philosophy that operates under the term liberalism that has kind of governed us for the last 30 or 40 years. And this term liberalism is an unsatisfactory term because it's not partic- the liberalism we've been living under isn't particularly liberal. There's uh, neoliberalism, but that sounds too technical. Um, <clears throat> so let me just call it uh, a sort of a, a bastardised variant of an antique tradition which I do uphold and support. Let me put it very simply. We've lived under the uh, auspices of the most extreme individualism that almost any country has ever lived under, both here and in the United States. The type of individualism that we've lived under produced the loads of money generation, the repudiation of tradition, the destruction of all virtue, the idea that if there were objective values, they were fascist and therefore relativism was more true. And as a result of this extreme individualism, we've all been told we're free. We've all been told we have lots of choices. We've all been told that we needn't really bother about morality because it kind of trickles down along with wealth and everything's all right. And the real politics of liberation are exactly that, the complete, the utter maximisation of individual self-interest, because it's not really self-interest, it's really in everybody else's interest, personal pleasure, etc., and ad nauseum. Now, what's interesting about this legacy is it's completely ubiquitous. It's actually left-wing in terms of our particular history. I think it took root with the new left in the late 1960s, people like Marcuse, R.D. Lang, the politics of desire, so on and so forth. And the idea that all... All existing cultural forms were in some sense hierarchical and therefore illegitimate. And then it curiously passed from a left-wing legacy into a right-wing practice. And in a way, what we've been living under is the covert hegemony of, of both left and right of this idea. Now, what's interesting is this sort of liberalism that emerged was initially conceived as a critique of their totalitarian state. It was thought that the logic and the legacy of collectivism, the disastrous legacy of left collectivism, could only be resisted by either a right individualism or a left individualism. However, this term neoliberalism is the most stasis philosophy that we've ever had since Soviet communism. Why? 
Quite simply, if we have a rights-based individualism, whereby each of us has no common interest, each of us, there is no good other than the goods that I or you determine, then we need an external policeman or policewoman to ensure that our interactions don't invade those inviolate bonds that individualism perpetually and exhaustively always seeks to resurrect and claim. So in short, individualism, as we've conceived of it, requires extreme collectivism under the auspices of the state. And so neoliberalism is the most statist philosophy, contra its primary advocates. Why? Because if you have a society that has no common code, if you have a society that's repudiated the idea of anything that might be shared, that might limit you, that might constrain you, and that might direct you, then you have to have an external policeman to police your interactions. Therefore, this explains the twin legacy of what we have today. An authoritarian, bureaucratic, dysfunctional state that controls all things, that stands as proxy for society, for family, for community and for code. And I think in William Hague's very memorable phrase vis-à-vis Blur, ineffective authoritarianism. This is what we've produced on the side of the state. On the side of the individual, we've produced ever more atomised human beings who follow kind of modes of pleasure-seeking that bring less and less reward, but more and more social entropy. And then more and more of an attempt to minimise that social entropy through ever-rising levels of uh, relentless consumerism. What I want to suggest to you, then, is that that's the origin of the breakdown that we've seen. We've seen a breakdown of our society. I don't believe we're living in Afghanistan, but I do believe that the thesis of the broken society is largely correct, not to do with some sort of indices about teenage pregnancy, but to do with the the idea of relationality, with with a most disassociative society. And that every, everywhere we look, we're, produ- we're becoming a society of ever-decreasing circles. We associate more and more with people like ourselves, less and less with those who are different. Speaking to a, a noted sociologist, he told me that, um, the, the, that all of our society, Danny Dawling, uh, whose work I think is very important, all of our societies uh, over the last 40 years have restricted and restricted and that we're becoming a society not only where we're engaging with less and less people, unlike ourselves, but also our relationships with people sideways and above us are narrowing and diminuting as well. So much so that um, this notion of trust, which we then import into this thing, clearly can't work. Because the tr- if we just enter this world that I've just described with ideas like trust, all that means is I will only trust people like myself. And indeed, isn't that what we've heard? If trust is only people like myself, then there's more, less and, there's more and more people who aren't like yourself who you don't engage with and therefore you don't give those opportunities to. And in part, this, in, this explains the decrease of social mobility, the idea that people are more and more trapped precisely because their networks don't extend and don't extend across all the sort of groups and segmentations we see. So in the end... Trust cannot work in the society and framework that I've just described. So what I suggest that we need is to move away from that settlement and move to, um, to something else, the space that has been destroyed by a sort of an individuated market account and an indivi- which is then solved by the state. And that, I would, that is the civic middle, the world of civil society, the associative state, as I've, I've termed it in in other ways. And that, I think, has to become the new basis for a new form of settlement, a new form of political, social and moral settlement. And only out of that can we produce a society that, where we can deliver something like we all putatively would endorse equality, mobility, prosperity and the extension of wealth to create a plural society where all can prosper. And in that sense, the language of values won't get us there. Why? Because everybody has values. And precisely the language of values doesn't commit you to anything other than the relentless subjectivization I was describing earlier. What we need to do is create a culture of virtue. And virtue is profoundly different to value because virtue is about the educating of the values you have 
into the values you ought to have. As such, the language of virtue is always already committed to the idea of there being a genuinely common good that we all share, and the idea that all behaviour and code should in some sense be oriented to that common good. By the same token, it doesn't mean anything fascist or authoritarian in the wrong way. What it actually means is that there is a good that we can discern. And precisely because it's a project of cultural and social practice, the discernment of that good is exactly what a democracy allied to the good would look like. And also because virtue, which I understand as formation, is the idea that all of our institutions should be formed towards that current discernment. And only in the creation of a common society of mutually contested and discern virtue, can we create anything like the trust that everybody's been discussing heretofore? Because only if we have trust in that type of environment can we avoid the restriction of everything we believe in to ever, ever smaller pools of people exactly like ourselves. Only then can we have a society that avoids both extreme state collectivization or the sort of the nightmare of persistent extreme individualism, which, of course, only the well-placed or the enriched win. One of the reasons why equality of opportunity has failed and failed to deliver, as Harriet Harman's... um, I'm not normally a fan of Harriet, but I think we have to acknowledge that it was a brave piece of work that she did with her Equalities Commission. Interestingly, what you see there is that all of the attempts that we've done to try and redress inequality have, have failed. Not only are rates of income between the top 10% and the bottom 10%, um, anything from 5 to 10, but it's asset inequality that's really crucial. Asset inequality is 100 to 1 between the, those at the top and those at the bottom. And when you create a society with that level of inequality, only a politics of the common good, only a politics of reordering the commons and letting those who've been excluded from them access once more, markets, entrepreneurship, ownership and wealth, can deliver you a society where all are well positioned. So in that sense, to restore trust, we actually have to do something that our culture hasn't done for 30 or 40 years. Believe in objective values, believe they can be known, and talk about the structures that might realise them. That alone would be a genuine politics. That alone would be a game-changer. Everything else will just serve the already vested interests that are also prominent. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Philip. Um, if, you, if you want more from Philip, he's a prolific tweeter, so you can, uh, you can go to his, um, uh, his Twitter feed, where there's a couple of insights uh, I picked up from the, re- from the last week. Uh, proofs, proofs, and more proofs. Um, you can make of that what you wish. And uh, too tired to do very much, um, which uh, hopefully he's recovered from. Um, now to Claire Fox, um, former editor of Living, Marxist, um, Living Marxism. Sorry. Um, and uh, Claire now runs the Institute of Ideas, which she set up, and will give us her thought for the day. Thanks. Um, one way I think of thinking about trust is uh, that it's about an issue of the crisis of authority, Uh, We no longer trust those previously vested with authority to run society, run the economy or whatever. And obviously this has had quite a demoralising effect on a whole range of institutions and their leaderships. As I'm sure we're all familiar, any institutions we've been involved in, there's an awful lot of mea culpa hand-wringing and kind of self-flagellation in a range of organisations now, where literally board meetings can consist of people saying, I know we're awful and no one trusts us, what are we going to do? But I think it actually presents a genuine dilemma for those in authority, how to gain permission and authority to act. And I I wanted to look at a number of uh, solutions that I think are problematic. One of the uh, main ones is that I think that the way that institutions are gaining this permission or authority to act and attempting to authorise their actions is through third parties. So in the corporate sector, this amounts to bringing in the consultants or bringing in the PR agencies, effectively hiding behind external agencies to justify decisions. It's a trend that I'm describing as an outsourcing of authority. I think there's a similar trend to outsource authority in politics. 
A few years ago, I was um, asked to um, a, a big conference, Queen Elizabeth Hall in London, um, of all the country's parenting organisations. And the conference was opened up by Children's Minister Margaret Hodge. And she uh, took uh, to the stage and she con looked at us all in the audience and she confided. She said, to be honest with you, we politicians are not trusted by the electorate and they don't So I want to ask you to be our trusted intermediaries. We want you, parenting organisations, parenting charities, NGOs, community and family organisations, to go out and to sell our policies on the doorsteps. And she basically said, you know, we can't go direct to people, we want you to do it for us, and then offered them a lot of money to do the job, which they all did. She also said that another uh, trusted intermediaries that she cited at the time were uh, Jamie Oliver and Tanya Bryan, who she also pointed out that whilst nobody believed in politicians, uh, they did trust uh, TV celebrities and that they could have a big impact on pushing forward policy. I think that that creates a number of problems. First of all, it actually creates a new breed of experts who tend to be trusted fairly uncritically, whether they're NGOs or Jamie Olivers. And the problem with these people is, is that they're actually unelected and unaccountable. Another example more recently was last year when the uh, government le um, uh, launched the Beacon Project, which was where universities and research councils were told that it was important that they get their research out to the public. Again, another government minister spoke to us all in the audience and said, you know, we have a real problem, which is we as politicians, nobody believes us. But we've done an opinion poll and we found out that academics and scientists are very highly trusted. So what we want you to do is to use your research and to go out and persuade people to change their behaviour in relation to obesity, climate change and ageing with the specific things he talked about. Now, apart from the fact that this led to the rather daft consequences of a load of academics going up and setting up stalls in shopping centres in Newcastle and Cardiff, which I actually witnessed, which I can tell you was a complete waste of time, and apart from the fact that this is actually a serious compromise on academic freedom, uh, where actually the government effectively tell researchers what to deliver, the correct outcomes of their research, which, by the way, is not research at all, it's advocacy. Apart from all of that, I think we can see that that attitude has actually had quite an important impact on politics because I think it explains the enthusiasm for evidence-based research. You cannot have an argument with a politician anymore without them trying to close down the debate by saying, but the evidence shows. That is meant to stop you in your tracks. If you try and argue against draconian and liberal policies such as fines for citizens not recycling or tax on flights or the hold-up of development in, in China or Africa or India um, in the name of climate change, people will simply say, but the evidence shows, the science shows, end of story. In other words, there is an attempt to hide behind and authorise political actions through this sort of objective uh, evidence. I, um, in, in another uh, debate uh, on the nanny state, in fact, um, when I was arguing against the intervention into the family, uh, ever more intrusive intervention into private lives in the family, I was met by uh, uh, the insistence that, in fact, the neuroscience proves, and they literally waved a kind of uh, neuroscience paper at me, uh, this particular government minister, um, and said that neuroscience shows that unless we intervene uh, before the child is age three, then they're going to end up um, psychotic, uh, taking drugs, antisocial, and so on and so on. And it's in the science. And that was meant to, again, stop the debate. Um, I think apart from the fact that this bastardises science, it can also tr uh, create another uh, breed of trusted experts. Um, scientists these days have almost become a priestly class, uh, and I think that we have to be very wary of that because we're trusting people, uh, but we're not able to hold them to account. Another version of this outsourcing of authority is a transfer of decision-making to us, the people, so-called democratisation. Gordon Brown, when he recently launched his new brand of politics, actually said... We want to win back your trust, and we're going to do that by giving you more power locally. And there is now a widespread phenomenon, as you know, of endless citizens' panels, consultations, empowerment initiatives, and so on. People are constantly asking us for our views and opinions on everything from dustbin collection to NHS services. And it's not confined to politics. Um, I'm familiar with the media. And um, any of the uh, re meetings that I've been to with the BBC, it's as though the kind of leadership of the BBC are having a nervous breakdown, all due respect to those people here uh, or filming. Um, uh, there's kind of an endless attempt at saying, what would the audience want? Chasing audience feedback. The best one for me is, email in the news that matters to you. 
which, to be frank, is not news at all. It's just parochial prejudice. And the whole point about news is that you find out something that you didn't know was in the news. Anyway, should we be flattered? Should we be flattered that everyone's interested in our opinions? Because it's as though those in authority think that they can win back our trust by a sustained campaign of wooing us, telling us how wonderful we are, how interesting our views are, how important we are. But really, it's an abdication of responsibility. I was once asked to debate citizenship um, by the head of uh, the uh, uh, education in Birmingham, whether it should be made compulsory in schools. He actually turned up and said, I'd rather not speak, I'd rather let the people speak, and proceeded to produce five 12-year-olds who all stood up and read speeches saying, we think citizenship is wonderful. And uh, obviously I was meant to kind of collapse in a heap. I didn't. I shouted at the children and him. But anyway... <laughs> The, uh, the point was, was that this was cited as an example of empowering the young, whereas actually I think they were used as a stage army to ventriloquise already agreed policies. So in truth, um, I think that, and apart from anything else, I think a lot of what we see today shows real contempt for the people. So I don't trust this empowerment strategy. One rarely commented on feature of the crisis of trust is actually a lack of trust in us, the people. The focus of endless policy debates and most of the growing legislation over recent years is not about correcting the fact that we don't trust the political elites, but actually about the fact that political elites have lost trust in us, ordinary people. They debate whether that we can be trusted on juries to make the right decisions. Why aren't enough rape cases being found uh, guilty? Uh, why don't they understand the complexities of business and so on? Can't trust the juries. Hate street legislation, um, uh, racial, religious hatred, bans on free speech are generally based on an assumption that we can't be trusted to hear hateful views in case we automatically act on them. Whether it's the nanny state or nudging or downright bans on things like smoking, those in power assume that few people can be trusted to make the right decisions in relation to what's called pro-social behaviour. The assumption is, if we're left to our own devices, we will inevitably make the wrong antisocial decisions. We'll all be binge drinking, eating junk food, chain smoking, feckless and greedy. Although that's me, it's not necessarily fair to blame the rest of the population like that. <laughs> a good example would be to look at the debate on parenting. The issue of parenting, every time it's discussed, it's obvious that the political elite believe parents cannot be left alone or are, and are incapable of rearing their own children. Everything from nappy changing to the content of the school lunchbox is now subject to a government manual and a quango and an intervention by an army of super nannies, healthy eating gurus and third-party parenting experts. Caroline Flint, I remember, infamously ordered trusted intermediaries into supermarkets to keep their eye on mums who were buying the wrong type of food and then to kind of jump out at them and tell them how they could cook. <laughs> Tesco's are, are now doing the job for them because they assume that if you're buying lager with the kids in tow, you're drip-feeding them alcohol when you get them home. The problem with all this is the constant hectoring from officialdom about how hopeless we are as parents or indeed as individuals chips away at our confidence. We lose trust in ourselves, by far the worst thing to do. Our autonomy and our agency are undermined. We're scared of doing the wrong thing. And as individuals, if we lose our ability to make decisions without resource to third parties, we actually lose our freedom. And it has indeed got serious implications for our liberty. The, count, the contact point database on which every single child in England and Wales will be registered now orders that agencies working with children flag up any concerns. The GP must report the bruises on the child. If the school teacher notices that the child is fed up or depressed, that's got to be written down. If the uncle's an alcoholic, they're all brought together and the next thing social services are in the frame. Uh, Risk-averse reporting in, the ca in case there's another baby pee and so on. But... Broadly, what this does is encourages distrust of all of us, all parents as possible abusers. In fact, in general, and to finish, in general... They're trying to shut me up over there, and I'm nearly finished, so it's OK. In fact, in general, in relation to children, um, there is an increasing presumption of distrust. If you look at the vetting and barring scheme... Millions and millions of adults who come into contact with children, whether they're running the local guides, running the local gym, or even indeed dropping their uh, friends' uh, children round to uh, uh, football practice, now have to be criminally checked, CRB checked. Esther Ranson, challenging me on this, said, but Claire, why don't you want a CRB check? What have you got to hide? But the problem is, if you start from the premise of suspicion, you're basically told that you have to prove that you're trustworthy. You now need a state licence to prove that it's OK to have contact with children. 
And what I'm basically saying is this distrust of us breeds a whole climate of mistrust. Parents are wary of sports coaches paying too much attention to Amy. Not that she might be any good at sport, but she's bound, he's bound to be abusing her. A dad taking photos in the swimming pool of his own kids is reported by teachers as doing something malevolent. We eye each other up with suspicion. There's a breakdown of adult solidarity. And finally then, when a child was wandering around our estate, my partner was frightened to ask that child to come in for a cup of tea, even though he was locked out by his own family, in case somebody saw it the wrong way. And he didn't, in fact, look after that child. And what I think it means is that this climate of distrust, which is fed to us from the top, means that we're becoming properly antisocial. And that is the real problem of the climate of mistrust. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Claire. Um, I, I couldn't find Claire on Twitter, but um, Charlie Leadbeater, who uh, you probably saw was live tweeting during the speeches there, um, does do a lot, of, uh, a lot of Twittering under the handle We Think. Um, uh, he, he also does a lot of speeches. Um, I, I joked that uh, a, a management thinker is a contradiction in terms, but he really is a top management thinker. Um, his book is in your packs, I think. Um, certainly was in my pack anyway, a, a, a mini version. Um, and uh, anyway, I'll, I'll just introduce him with one tweet he gave on a recent speech. Uh, he says, My talk to St John's College Cambridge History Society went well. More professors than students in the audience, he said. That's four professors. Um, <laughs> his, we, we've got a proper size audience here, so Charlie, over to you. It was a, it was a small but select group. Um, so I just want to say a little bit about, because it's only supposed to be seven minutes, I've actually taken the trouble to write it down, which I don't normally do. So I will probably just read this in a way. But um, there is a group in society that I think we haven't talked about that definitely can't be trusted. We've talked about convenient scapegoats, bankers, politicians, climate change scientists, estate agents, journalists even. But the group I have in mind is even more numerous, more powerful, and that, of course, is us. We definitely can't be trusted. Uh, and let me just talk for myself a bit, because I don't want to talk for you, but I definitely can't be trusted. Um, I can't be trusted to eat well, exercise, or drink um, moderate amounts, so I have to have a personal trainer. I can't be trusted to save for my old age, so I have to have a financial advisor. Uh, even if I could buy a pension, I couldn't be trusted not to be hoodwinked by those people who sold me that endowment mortgage. Uh, and if I were trusted with my children, they'd never get dressed. Many people think that adult children can't really be trusted to look after their parents. Professional footballers aren't the only people who can't be trusted with their relationships. As Neil pointed out, we can't really be trusted not to be diverted by some passing novelty uh, or lured into amnesia uh, and so repeat bad uh, decisions. None of us, it seems to me, can really be trusted with the planet. Well, apart from that professor this morning, the one with the amazing clothes and the unpronounceable name. Um, and we have a gnawing sense that we can't really be trusted to do what we say we believe in. So the fundamental problem of trust in society doesn't start with all these institutions out there. It fundamentally starts with us. And there are two uh, big historic solutions to that. Uh, one of which is very well known, the other less known, but is coming back into fashion. And many of our problems stem from the conflict between these approaches and their implications for trust. Many of our opportunities stem from the way that we can combine them. So the first approach, which uh, actually both Claire and Philip have uh, alluded to, is the approach of uh, Thomas Hobbes, 1651. Hobbes argued uh, society would become a war of all against all, of selfish individuals, be complete chaos, unless we voluntarily subjugate ourselves to an authority that we ourselves create the state. And then most of our issues and problems stem from that creation of this external authority. Can we really trust the state? Can we create a zone of privacy into which the state can't really come? Can we latterly uh, make these huge systems that we depend upon for our health, our education and other things more personalised and responsive, less dehumanising and alienating? But the solution that um, Hobbes set up was a world in which a kind of solution was invented to problems. And the solution was, people will do things for you, uh, which we like, but the danger is that in doing things for you, they'll do things to you. 
and they'll abuse the power that you have vested in them. They'll sell you a nice cheap mortgage, but they'll bankrupt you in the process. Politicians claiming some higher purpose are routinely assumed to be doing so out of their own self-interest. Learning at secondary school, for me, was something that people constantly claimed was something that was being done for me. I can tell you it was something done to me repeatedly, and it was often quite painful. Management, the reason that I'm not actually a top management thinker, and certainly not in management, is that management most of the time is doing things to people. So all these four and two systems, public and private, suffer from the same fatal flaw which is that rather than protecting people from a chaotic, self-interested world out there, they have internalised self-interest. We are surrounded by self-interested systems. The fundamental problem that we feel with these systems is that they're interested in their votes, their profits, their bonuses, their results, their targets. They're not really interested in you. And so because of that, because they're so powerful, they generate exactly what Hobbes said they wouldn't generate, they generate huge uncertainty and insecurity. So that's not true everywhere. And it's certainly one of the many, well, one of the, I wouldn't say many falsehoods, but one of the falsehoods in Philip's presentation is the idea that we are one of the most statified societies in the earth. I mean, a much more statified society is Denmark. 73% of spending is public spending. Um, Denmark is also a much more uh, communitarian society. 90% of Danes don't fill out a tax return. They simply get an estimate from the state, and the state says, if you disagree with it, let us know. Only 10% ever disagree. A portion of those, they're Danish, disagree because they want to pay more tax. So, um, actually, societies which have the ability to combine state and community are very, very powerful, but we're not one of them. So there's another solution to the problem that we can't really trust ourselves Uh, And it was proposed almost at exactly the same time as Hobbes by a man who's virtually unknown, whose name is Gerard Winstanley. And Gerard Winstanley led the diggers during the English Revolution. And Winstanley started from a completely different vantage point, which was relationships rather than individuals. Winstanley's argument is that we are not created out of our own self-will or our own self-interest. We're created out of our relationships. So a notion of freedom that doesn't build those relationships is a self-defeating freedom. Because the freedom to express ourselves must be, by, by logic, to express those related relationships. And so when Stanley's solutions were that social order could emerge out of our relatedness, out of our self-governance in mutual and cooperative uh, forms of organisation. In other words, when Stanley was proposing solutions that work with people and by people, not for for people and to people. So work is most dignified when it's done with people. When you're not working for someone, you're working with other people. Uh, Political leadership is most effective, not when you're spinning people into acquiescence, but when actually you're getting them to come with you, a rare experience for politicians. Learning is most effective when it's something that's done with people. It's an interchange, an interaction, rather than the transfer of knowledge. The environmental shift that we need is really about learning to work with natural systems rather than extracting resources from them. So these two approaches, the for and to approach, the with and by approach, lead to very different approaches to trust. So if you need to trust people to do for and to you would uh, have contracts. It would be a transactional approach to trust. You'd want to measure their performance, uh, and it would be quite instrumental. You'd end up at 1 a.m. at the McKinsey drinks party at Davos shooting defenceless birds, if you're interested in that kind of trust. In a world where you need to do things with people, uh, trust is more relational. It's about shared interests and values, about respect and recognition. Then you end up in a coffee field in Rwanda. And so here's one of the obvious problems, is that we get these two kinds of trust mixed up. And when you do, you end up in a coffee field in Rwanda in a mink coat shooting defenceless coffee beans. (laughs) So most of the 20th century was dominated by the rise, public and private, of four and two style organisations. And we're spending a lot of time trying to fix the problems of those organisations. But as Julia pointed out this morning, actually they invent a kind of faux kind of intimacy. I have a personal relationship banker at Barclays Bank who insists on calling me by my first name even though I have never met him. 
It's completely insulting. With and by solutions, very old mutual cooperatives, networks and villages, uh, being spread now really by mobile communications and the web, they actually can do intimacy at scale. Mothers to Mothers does intimacy at scale. It operates at scale across Africa, but everything it does is incredibly intimate. So four and two solutions can deliver you very, very useful things. It can deliver washing machines, cars, trousers with elastic waistbands. But most of what we most value, recognition, respect, friendship, love, care, come from relationships. They come from with solutions. So to conclude, it's this contrast and conflict and possible combination between for and to and with and by which is at the heart of many of our challenges. Let me just give you two very quick final examples. Virtually every media business that I know, new and old doesn't have a business model that they can rely upon for more than five years because traditional four and two solutions, we're going to deliver some content to you, but we're also going to do something to you in the form of advertising, is being completely disrupted by with and by solutions being created by the web. Meanwhile, the people doing with and by have no idea how they're going to make money, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, what have you. So the Financial Times has got a four-and-two solution that works. The Times is desperately trying to invent one. The Guardian is going with with and by to some extent. So most of those industries will be, I think, in a state of near civil war for probably 20 years, fighting between these two different approaches. But the sweet spot is often where you can combine the two. World of Warcraft combines four-and-two, selling you some software with with and by. Apple is a master of four and two and with and by. And we had a brilliant example this morning. And the brilliant example, of course, is Mothers to Mothers. Uh, I spent a day with Mothers to Mothers in Nairobi, and I've never seen a better definition of Ian Hutchinson's account of inner beauty than the women that I spent that day with. And the story of Mothers to Mothers is the amazing four and two solution, the invention of drugs that could allow the management of HIVs wasn't working until it was combined with a with and by solution, which was mothers helping one another to persuade them to take the drugs. With and by made four and two effective in a way that it wasn't before. So most of our lives will be caught up with the tensions, conflicts and opportunities of these different approaches. And we've spent enormous time, it seems to me, honing, restructuring, aligning, rationalising, personalising, spinning four and two, trying to fix systems that are fundamentally self-interested and fundamentally broken. The big opportunity of the next century, uh, this century, is with and by approaches. And if you want to continue the slightly smug Latin theme that developed this morning, (laughs) it would probably mean a shift from dative to ablative. Or if you want to put it... Comprehensive school. (laughs) I went on Wikipedia. (laughs) Or if you want to put it another way, if you want guidance, don't look up, look sideways. So if you want one word of advice, one thought for today about facing the future, it is learn with, govern with, work with, think with. Thank you, Charlie. Um, we'll, we'll go now to the, um, to the audience. Um, what do you think? Which, which, uh, which part of speech um, is yours? Adjectives? Nouns? Anyone with verbs, perhaps? Uh, I wanted to ask Philip how you would implement virtue, the virtue you were talking about. Um, in, a, <clears throat> in a number of ways, that's the most interesting political question of our time. Um, for the simple fact, um, you know, Michael Sandel privilege the same thing. I think we all acknowledge there's a good and there's some binding general good. And I think I share with... Actually, I don't really see much distinction between us, apart from a view of whether Denmark is an associative state or a status state, but we'll leave that... It's an interesting question, actually. I'll leave that to the side. I think the politics of objective virtue are very interesting. And I think the 
current consensus thinks, oh, it must be fascism. You know, if it's hierarchical, it must be awful. But I think unless you have a hierarchy, you have no politics. Take, for example, equality. Probably most people in this room believe in equality. But why? Why? Why believe in equality? The only way to reason to believe in equality is you think amongst all the goods that are in the world, equality is one of the determinative goods. Therefore, we use this good to distribute all other goods. That's a hierarchical move. I privilege the good of equality over the good of beauty. I privilege the good of equality over, over the good of education, for instance. Why? Because in order to have a theory of distributive justice, you must know what you should distribute. In order to know what you should distribute, you have to have, believe in an objective account of the good. Now, what's interesting is if you don't have that, if you don't have objective virtue, all you have is war between communities. So when Charlie talked about with and by, which I agree with, what you actually get if you don't think at this level is you get wars between different with and bys. We have this, we have that. You get warring communities. And if you don't want warring communities, and we don't want warring communities, I suggest, there has to be a way of, of, ha- of having an account of peace, a peaceable justice. Now, you can either have a liberal peace, in, understood in the pejorative modern sense, which is ghettoization. You have your world over there, we have our world over here. And that's hell, because that fractures society and nobody lives in that world. Or you can have a virtue peace, which is what is the common good that we share, and how can we create it such that it's possible for all of us? That's my politics. Well, good narratives depend on strong contrast. So Philip's narrative depends on this contrast between a kind of ultra-individualism and the kind of response that he's uh, talking about. The truth is that actually a lot of the figures and data on social capital and people's relationships are much more stable uh, than people think. Actually, British society isn't broken. Some places are deeply, deeply fractured and broken. And quite a lot of it is brittle, but British society I don't think is broken in that sense. And I think that's a very important thing to build on. So I'm less pessimistic in that sense than uh, Philip. But also I think that there's a way between the kind of investment in virtue and kind of sheer relativism, which is much more like Amartya Sen's approach to to justice than John Rawls's approach to justice, which is justice is a kind of continual process of adaption and learning. It's a continual process of public debate, of people coming together around shared norms, getting away from absolute injustices towards justice, uh, and sharing, I think actually there's a much greater shared sense than we give credit for about what people count as fair in society. So actually I think you can, I'm much less worried about it in that sense than than Philip. But what we have done is make a a bargain, which was the kind of the McDonald's McKinsey state which would do things for us in a sort of consumerist model and completely wipe out all those layers of associative life that are absolutely critical. So I also completely agree with some of what Claire said about kids and families in these places. We're working on, I'm working on an estate in Swindon with families that would be called chronic crisis families. And they are completely isolated from any kind of social relationship that might get them out of the state that they're in. They are visited constantly over many years by state services that do nothing other than introduce more crisis into their lives. And the solution to that is not a better state, actually. It's it's the creation of mutual supports in society and advice and support to allow families to take back control of their lives. But it's not about a better performance state. So... um, you know, to that extent, I think I agree with Philip that it's about the creation of these, these ways of doing things, but I'm less pessimistic about the underlying kind of culture of society. Just a, a few things. I think that um, there is a danger that we all assume that we know what the virtuous society will look like. So I would uh, like to at least posit that there should be, this should be a contested area, and as you just said, that this would be something that would be fought over. One of the things that's absent at the moment is an assumption that we know what it looks like. I mean, I, that there's a kind of, or virtuous behaviours are assumed. So it is assumed that if you are irresponsible about your health, that this is a bad thing. I mean, you might actually just choose to do that. It is not necessarily a bad thing for society that you want to, or don't care, have made a calculated decision as an adult that you'd rather live shorter, happier, uh, than, you know, kind of longer, boring, you know, endlessly at the gym. You might make that decision, right? I mean, there are people who live a very long time 
in a very dull way. And you have to, you know, you have to decide as adults those kind of choices. But, it, but when, the, when politicians talk about it, or even when social policy people talk about it, it's often assumed that we all know what we mean by the virtuous society. So what I'd say is... One of the things that could, politics could do with at the moment is competing visions being put up for us to fight over. And one of the dispiriting things about the election is, is that you do think, will just the three parties tell us what kind of society they would like to see in five years' time? You know, what kind of economy should we have? What kind of virtues? Mm. You know, presumably they've got different views. If they've all got the same views, then we'll all set up a new party, fair enough. But they won't even tell us that, because we need to be able to decide. So in that sense, then, I slightly didn't agree with Charlie's... Um, don't look up, look sideways. Because sometimes I do think I want to look up. There are people who know more than me on some things. I don't want to constantly... <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I know it's hard to believe. But there is nothing worse, because I do think there's a confidence of crisis of those who are up there. Uh, the example I was thinking of was doctors who, when you go to the GP these days, won't tell you what's wrong and ask you what you think's wrong. So when the whole, the whole thing that's like, <laughs> do you think you need intervention? I don't bloody know. Tell me. Because it's all this patient-centred medicine. Education, which is my particular area, they've actually made it a statutory voice to have pupil... Uh, statutory to have pupil voice, where teachers now have to ask pupils what kind of lessons they want. They are now on interview panels. You do think that asking the least qualified people in the school to judge the standard of education is actually because teachers have lost the confidence to be above their charges. So I don't necessarily want everyone looking sideways. Sometimes there are people you want to look up to. It's not a permanent... It doesn't mean that you're kind of submissive. It can mean that you actually respect genuine expertise. We have a question over here. Uh, Neil Stewart. Um, I mean, first of all, I just think three fantastic presentations and surprising uh, crossovers. But I think the things that you were all talking about are going to be tested to destruction over uh, the next two years. And I hope that actually what the three of you said are on the winning side. In the public services, both at uh, national level and at local level, this is exactly the battle that is going to be carried out. Currently, we have public services that uh, do things to and for people. They have the self-interested uh, groups that Philip and others were talking and that Claire described some of the extreme behaviour in it. They have huge sums of money uh, spent on them. There are a significant number of people who believe that if some of the, uh, those public services can become, well, more mutual is the language that's being used at the moment, but more focused on doing things with uh, people and for them, that there's a possibility that uh, actually we could keep the services and things going within the resources. Secondly, uh, there does have to be, we've had a lot of conversation here about trust, um, but, and building trust and building uh, the good things. In a contested society, you have to build consent, and you know, elections are quite a good way of doing it. And people will put up with politicians doing things to them that they previously said they wouldn't. And I mean, the only sort of examples of that really are the smoking ban and uh, charging in London, where the whole world waited for a huge outburst, but actually people accepted, the, the, consented to it. Interestingly, they had reasonably strong uh, political profiles behind the people that were pushing it. But you need to be able to uh, reconcile and deal with conflict and hatred when it breaks out. Some of the stuff you talked about, what kinds of uh, justice. Well, some justice mechanisms are democratic mechanisms or mutual mechanisms. But it seems to me that that is a big, big cultural change that needs to be driven now, there are a lot of us, and I'm sure, Charlie, there are a lot of us who spent a lot of years inside the Labour Party thinking that if the Labour Party won, won three elections with huge amounts of political capital and big majorities, it would have done a lot of this by now and are slightly uh, pissed off that it hasn't because we are about to go over this edge. But what Charlie described, I think, is the route that some of the public services, the only chance that they have of avoiding going back to 1980s chopping and slicing and destruction, but it's a huge culture change, a massive battle with entrenched uh, values and interests in some of the management classes, and overcoming and reversing some of the things that Claire uh, uh, described. But I am hugely cheered up by what all three of you have said, because actually I think 
could form a new party almost, but we won't go there. <laughs> Thank you for that. We'll go to Yasmin at the back then. Uh, yes, there were very uh, brilliant presentations, uh, two-thirds of which I passionately disagree with, but there's no t- time now to talk about it. Just, It would have been nice for both Philip and Claire to use some qualifiers, you know, words like some, a greater proportion, because I do not believe that we are so low in trust. Actually, what is extraordinary about Britain, and I'm not often very complimentary, is the extraordinary connections at an intimate level between people of different races and backgrounds. Class is more problematic, I agree with you there. But it's simply not true that we're only playing with people who are like ourselves. And some are, but on the whole, there is an alternative story. And also, I find Claire's kind of fairly anarchic view quite disturbing. So I decide I want to be very unhealthy and die young. Do I then sign a contract that I will never, therefore, go to a doctor or to the National Health Service and die quietly in a dark corner because that's a decision I made. I mean, these things are interrelated. Um, and I find it, you know, there are some very good points. It's, I find Charlie's extraordinarily good presentation possibly a place where we can go, where you, you know, you're going with some authoritarianism, or at least some responsibility and action from above, which Philip seems to agree with up to a point, that there needs to be... a Uh, uh, an order, if you like, and who decides that order and who decides that virtue is going to be very interesting. Who does? If you're not going to go for the democratic model to decide what these virtues are, it is a form of, if not fascism, certainly a certain form of really quite authoritarian imposition. So I just think it would be good if we used more qualifiers because some of the statements just are not borne out by any research that I know of. Okay, thanks for that, Yasmin. There's more from Yasmin later on today. Um, we'll go to David now for a last question or, or statement, and then, um, and then we'll have a quick wrap-up. Thanks very much. Um, as ever, I'm, when listening to uh, a range of, uh, of views like this, I mean, with Philip, I, I wonder whether I actually live in the same country as he does, um, because I don't recognise it as the place where I am. I mean... Me- It doesn't take very much, Philip, to see almost all these kind of associative endeavours going on in our society right now, from people running for charity to what happens when you have kids at school and the uh, the degree which people uh, get together. The notions of, and not just kind of abstract notions, but discussed notions of citizenship without even using the word are very, very constantly used uh, amongst our children and so on. And there is an absolutely constant discussion about personal and greater than personal morality. I would actually say in an area of contest far greater than when I was younger. And I think this is something that should be recognised. I also understand Claire's difficulty as um, a a person of seniority but also a, um, uh, a chain smoker with the use of evidence uh, as, a, uh, as an indicator as, uh, of behaviour uh, because you want to fly in the face of it. Um, all I can say about longevity and so on is it may be miserable, more or sort of dull, that in the next 30 years that the non-smoker will live longer than you, um, but it will be lived. Um, but the point I want to, but the question I want to ask you is actually about something else. It's about political responsibility. One of the things we've not talked about is the fact that it is a long-term secular decline in all of the democracy in the membership of political parties. And we might just take an interesting indication now. How many people in this room are <laughs> members of a political party? Now, that is pathetic. And it's not pathetic because you're bad people and so on, but that is an incredibly small proportion of an extremely active and thinking section of, uh, of British society. And yet you're not prepared to get involved in political parties or to even be members or contribute to political parties. And this is a long-term secular decline that we see throughout the democracies. And the question that I want to put to the panel is, is it not natural given the secular decline, that we have seen the investment increasingly of powers in what Claire calls the unaccountable quangos and so on, which is why the notion of the bonfire of the quangos is such a preposterous idea, because that is precisely where we non-joiners have now chosen to invest some degree of political power as a hedge against people who do originate from political parties. What are we going to do about the business of who it is we ask to represent us 
in, uh, 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 in government, uh, in local government and so on. How are we going to bridge this gap between the non-joiners and the parties we still rely upon in order to function, uh, create, construct our democracy for us? Okay, well, we'll, we'll very, very quickly answer those questions. <laughs> of course there's association, of course there's an associative drive, but it's blocked. I mean, that's what I would argue, David. If you look at, for instance, um, public sector procurement policies, if you're a third sector organisation trying to compete against the likes of Serco and Capita to meet the needs of drug addicts in your district, the barrier to market entry is massive. It's health and safety, it's audit, it's diversity, it's contract compliance, it's three years accounts. What actually is happening is that the, health, the audit culture of the state is stopping and blocking the associative drive. And so part of what we need to do is trust um, those third-party, uh, third-sector providers so that they can enter and create that associative drive. I think also that um, actually if you tracked uh, the associative drive and power from the 60s to now, it's very clear that association has less power than it ever has. I mean, you could look at trade unions, you could look at local authorities, you could look at church groups, you could look at the norming role. I think it's sort of bourgeois, in a genuine sense, to pretend that that isn't the case. And actually, what, what's going on is that there is a diminution, a long-term diminution of social capital. And I think that is actually largely irrefutable. But I think you're right that the drive is there. Um, just on uh, Yasmin's point, um, the thing about uh, who will pay for the healthcare, I mean, if anything is, is one of the most depressing stories of our time is when people say, why should I pay for the healthcare of that person <coughs> who's been irresponsible? Um, actually, it was said to me about somebody who'd had a very serious accident skiing recently when somebody else said, well, you know, why should we pay for them going off skiing? You know, posh idiot, you know what I mean? And where do you draw the line? You know, <coughs> if you haven't got children, why should I bother having education for all? I mean, this is the end of the sense in which we as a society say we make a commitment, despite our own personal uh, uh, views, to society. There's plenty of public services I'd cut. I just don't think they're services. Um, I, I actually spoke at a local government conference. Uh, I write a column for the Municipal Journal, one of my more glamorous roles. And, um, uh, <laughs> widely read, widely read. Um, and um, so I'm always speaking at local government conferences. And this one was, what should we cut? And, you know, as somebody who spent years saying no cuts, no cuts, no cuts, I basically said, I haven't got, I can't do this, right, because I know we have to public spending but also there is an awful lot of things that local governments do that they call frontline services that are not frontline services and I talked about some of the kind of uh, you know the kind of recycling officers and uh, the fact that Haringey flew a plane over me to sorry to tell us to turn the lights out bloody blah, blah blah anyway I didn't go down very well but over half of the audience were sustainability consultants brought in by local government <laughs> so they hated me well get rid of them um, I, just a <laughs> final thing is evidence I am not opposed to evidence because I smoke. Um, the uh, evidence about smoking and cancer is irrefutable. I agree. But when Ian Duncan Smith stands up and says, I support the family and I'm against single parent families because there's evidence that shows that children under three who are from dysfunctional families have got small brains, you know that he's lost the confidence to win an argument politically and persuade me of the value of the uh, family and is hiding behind the evidence. None of them have read the bloody evidence, right? This is not about a respect for evidence or science. Scientists shouldn't be overflattered. These people are simply hiding behind the evidence, which is my point. I respect evidence as it goes. I just don't want it to be bastardised by politicians who haven't got the confidence to try and win our arguments with us. And then I'll join their parties and vote for them. <laughs> Charlie. Uh, well, this um, thing about virtue, just families that I dealt with on this estate in Swindon who are close to the least virtuous families regarded by the elites that Claire have been talking about. Turns out if you bother to create a situation in which they can start to talk, which they can't, and people listen to them, and they're given the ability to plan and mobilise resources around those plans, they've got exactly the same aspirations as everyone in this room. Um, and they simply have not got the means to make sense of their lives. They've got no narrative structure to their lives whatsoever. So the narrative of their lives is provided by crisis. And it's the only thing that brings those families together is crisis. These are families more likely to turn up in court 
than go to school. So um, it's very simple, and th- that does then speak to Neil's point about the nature of these services, because you know these families in Swindon we were working with, they were, they were having £300,000 plus spent on them through services that were doing nothing for them. If you spent £50,000 in the right way, you would transform their lives. But to do that, to get to David's point, you need politics, because you need politics to take the risk, to change the system, to transform it. And I suppose my big thought about that, David, is very, very simple, is that actually, although most people in this room are probably not members of political parties, I bet if you asked how many people in this room are politically active, how many people in this room would describe themselves as politically active? It's a slightly higher number, but I would say that's way too small. On that, um, on that note, we're going to have to cut it off, I'm afraid. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.